invite you to turn to Mark chapter 4. We'll be covering the conclusion of chapter 4 in verses 35 to 41. And I've titled this, Jesus, Lord of Nature. It shouldn't be a surprise at this point that not everybody who followed Jesus truly believed in him. Not everybody had faith. There were many who followed him. There were many who made some kind of a commitment to him, but they gave their, themselves to him. They made a commitment to Jesus with shallow hearts or with divided hearts. There were many in the thronging crowds who were wowed by his miracles and amazed and astonished by his teachings, yet nevertheless fulfilled what Isaiah wrote. These people come near me with their words. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, that was most, but there were some who received him. There were some who genuinely believed him and followed him. These were those who became his true disciples. These were those who had fruitful hearing. These were those who bore the fruit of the gospel, which was faith. Jesus' closest disciples had faith, yet we see throughout the narrative of the gospels that it was, from time to time, shown to be an underdeveloped faith. It was a weak faith, but it was a faith nonetheless. And this is evident even in this chapter We're told in verse 34 that Jesus had to explain to those who never, even though they had ears to hear, they were still dependent on Jesus to come alongside privately and explain the parables to them. This demonstrates that the disciples, despite having ears to hear, despite having eyes to see, despite having faith, they had a dullness of heart they had a slowness of heart and that's a that's something that the gospel writers uh, several of which are his disciples that is not something that they try in the slightest bit to hide in the gospel narratives if you remember back several months ago during our Easter service we looked at how only the women believed in the resurrection even his own disciples even the men were painfully, woefully slow to believe. They had a dullness, a slowness of heart that desperately, desperately needed to be quickened. They needed a a spiritual splash in the face, as it were, and they will get that in this text today. The narrative can be divided into four parts, each correlating to a different part of the storm. Verse 35 to 36, we see the calm before the storm. Verse 37 to 38, the calm during the storm. From 39 to 40, the calm after the storm. And in 41, the storm after the calm. Let's look at 
the calm before the storm. Verse 35 to 36, Mark writes, On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. Now, it's been a long day. It's been an arduous day. It's been a day full of teaching and preaching. The parables of chapter 4, as we've said before, are most likely a survey or a sampling of a much larger body of teaching. In verse 2 of chapter 4, Mark tells us that he was teaching them, the, the crowds, he was teaching them many things in parables. And then in verse 33, at the conclusion, he says, with many such parables, he was speaking to them. And we've observed how uh, Mark uses the imperfect tense here, the, the tense which, which tells us this was an ongoing, continuous action that was uninterrupted until uh, the, the present time. It, he doesn't say how long he was doing it, but the context shows it was an ongoing, continuous, uninterrupted action. And Mark uses that imperfect tense 11 times. He was teaching. He was preaching. He was ministering to them. He was speaking. He was, he was, he was, he was doing a lot of stuff. So all of these things. And uh, verse 10 to 12 and 34 tells us that Jesus would then take time after he had uh, uh, taught the crowds and spoke to the crowds. He would take time to privately step aside, take his disciples aside, and he would explain all of these things privately. So all of these things are, are suggesting a, a long uh, series of, of teaching and that Mark 4 is most likely a sampling. Perhaps in it, it is an example of one day amongst a period of many. So each day full of teaching, full of healing, full of preaching and ministering and discipling. And verse 34 begins with on that day. Perhaps this is the day that he gave all of these specific parables in one go. Perhaps it's the day that was made famous for the ensuing, ensuing miracle that would come on the water. But when evening came, Jesus makes the call to leave the crowds and to depart for the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He's been preaching near, uh, near Capernaum or, or possibly even in Capernaum. Capernaum was the hometown of Peter. It's on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Mark tells us that he has been preaching in a boat. This would have been a small fishing vessel. And who can tell me what we have christened this boat, this fine vessel? I know you've been taking notes. What is it, Charlie? The USS Pulpit. And this boat, this fine ship, this fine ship has served as a barrier for, from the people, as well as providing a podium for Jesus. The, the setting has, uh, is allowing Jesus this naturally formed amphitheater where, where his voice is bouncing off the waters onto the crowds, and the crowds are amassed on the beachhead at, at just the perfect angle 
uh, as, as they're seated or standing on the ascending shore, it is exactly like the rising seats of an amphitheater. And so Jesus is able to keep a, a close but controllable, safe distance from the crowds. And he is able to effectively teach the crowds who uh, don't always show consideration for the teacher. If you remember, on, a, on at least two occasions, they followed him into the wilderness with as much forethought as a toddler or a bachelor, a single bachelor, for their daily needs. And they just follow him out without any thought about how they are going to feed themselves. So they, they don't seem to have the greatest amount of consideration for Jesus's time or Jesus's needs. So it's, it's probably somewhere between their lack of consideration for, for his time and the fact that probably by now Jesus is tired. His disciples are tired. So probably somewhere between that, and there's also the fact that he has a divine appointment with a, with a demoniac in chapter 5, but we don't, that, 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 let's save that for next week. But between all that, Jesus makes the call that's, that we need to get away from here. We need to go to the other side of the lake. Jesus and his disciples need rest. They need reprieve. And the fact that the towns on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, that, that's approaching or encroaching on the more wildernessy areas of Galilee. They're, the towns are less populated. There's less people. Less people means that there's less hassle, less work to do, which means more time for rest. So Jesus makes the call. That's leave here. That's go over there. And so USS Pulpit charts a course to the other side, and embarks into the Sea of Galilee like a fine sailing vessel. Now, it's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's not really a sea. It's, it's a lake. This body of water is about 13 miles long. It's about 8 miles wide at its widest point. Uh, it's 161 square miles. And for those of you who are familiar with Lake Tahoe, it's about two-thirds the size of Lake Tahoe. The Sea of Galilee is supplied water from some hot springs, but mostly from Mount Hermon far in the north and in Syria. The Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake. It's actually the lowest uh, freshwater lake in the world. It's just about 700 feet below sea level, and it drains into the lowest saltwater body of in, in the world, which is also the lowest point in the world, the Dead Sea, and that is a further 700 feet below the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is, uh, has been called the most significant geological feature of Galilee. It provided ample drinking water in an area where water is pretty, pretty important. It provided water to drink, and it sustained a thriving fishing industry. In 1986, one boat alone on one haul brought in 9,200 pounds of fish. That is a lot of fish. Probably tipped the scales of their uh, industry. And at least four of Jesus' close disciples were, the, were these kind of well-trained fishermen. They spent many days out fishing. They are Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The, these men most likely even 
charted these waters before and worked these waters and fished these fish. And interestingly, John 21, verses 2 and 3, lists seven among the disciples who resort to going fishing. They're, they're waiting kind of frustratingly for Jesus to appear. All they know is they're supposed to wait for him in Galilee, and they're waiting, and Jesus doesn't show up. And so Peter says, I'm going fishing. And there are six others who go with them. And so uh, two of them, we, we, we aren't given their names, but as many as seven of the twelve were these blue-collar Galilean fishermen. And the USS Pulpit very well could have been one of their boats. One of the disciples could have been the captain of the USS Pulpit. Someone may ask, well, isn't Jesus supposed to be the captain of USS Pulpit? No, of course not. Jesus is the admiral. Look Look at verse 37. Is the USS Pulpit a lone, solitary vessel? Jesus has a fleet. Verse 37 tells us that there were other boats with them, and so we can christen this battle group Calvary. And they chart a course into the Sea of Galilee. And all of these seasoned fishermen in in, in Jesus' boat, in the boats alongside them, we're not told how many, but to be realistic, there probably were not enough boats to accompany the entire crowds. In fact, we are told he leaves the crowds behind. So this is a small number of these boats that would seat anywhere, comfortably seat anywhere from maybe 10 to 20 men. And none of the seasoned fishermen in the boats, not a single one of them, seems to show any concern about the encroaching weather. Not a single one of them shows the slightest bit of hesitation to get in the boat and to sail across the seas. What this tells us is that, in all likelihood, the the weather was calm and siren. I mean, none of these men, none of their knees are acting up or swell, none of their ankles are swelling, swelling, all the things that tend to happen to us when a storm's a brewing. None of that's happening. So the weather is nice and tolerant, Luke's account tells us that there was a gentle breeze because they are sailing instead of rowing, but we see very clearly this is the calm before the storm. And that leads to the calm in the storm, verses 37 to 38. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking up over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, the Sea of Galilee's topography is is, uh, one reason why it has been studied by people from all over the world. The the topography of the lake, the geological features of the lake, the, 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 the features of the hillside and the land and the formation of the land around it means that it is subject to incredibly violent storms. The the lake is surrounded by steep cliffs and hills on all sides, so so it effectively forms a bowl. The Golan Heights on the east raise as far as 3,750 feet above sea, sea level. Mount Tabor to the southwest, 1,764 feet above sea level. 
and then upper Galilee to the north and to the northwest, again, as high as 3,624 feet above sea level. Now, remember when the sea itself, when the, when the lake itself, the bowl is 700 feet below sea level. That is a big bowl. It is a big bowl. And all of those scientists out there can tell us that water is a very, very effective retenter. It retains heat very, very well. In fact, it retains heat better than most substances. Where the temperature is up on the hilltops and the cliffs and the surrounding plateaus, especially as night falls, the temperature up there goes down. It drops quickly. Whereas the water in the lake would keep substantially warm. Now, what do you think happens when that cold air up on top of the plateaus and as, it, as it's racing over the hills and the cliff edge and as it, it races down the cliffside and it comes into the bowl and it smacks into that warm water, warm air over the water? What do you think happens? That is the recipe for a storm. 1992, one storm created 10-foot-high waves. Now, those of you who know Lake Tahoe or, 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 or are familiar with bodies of water of this size, 10-foot-high waves are not a normal thing. One, one historian, one ancient historian said that... Uh, uh, in the city of Tiberias, which is on the southwest, it, it's not there anymore, but centuries ago, during such a storm, the, the wind carried water 200 yards into the city limits. It's a crazy, crazy opportunity for a storm. So as this little group, as this flotilla, as this little navy sets out, shortly before, there's no indication that a storm is brewing. The scene is siren. It is tranquil. It is calm. And there is no concern or hesitation shown on the part of these trained, expert, experienced fishermen. Verse 37 tells us, Then there arose a fierce gale of wind. This is a, a very important word for our study this morning, this word, uh, it, it's the word translated into fierce. It's the word mega. And we, we know what mega means. It means uh, something that is uh, big or grand or great or awesome. This is a, what's called in grammar a superlative. And it's used for emphasis. And so literally, and, and the word for gale is already has the idea of being a whirlwind or being a tempest or, or even a hurricane. The word itself means that. And so when you have a mega hurricane, a mega tempest, a mega whirlwind, that is a tempest of epic proportions. This is no normal storm. This is a catastrophic storm with hurricane-grade winds. So the idea, the, the picture here. Is, is the, the Sea of Galilee. It's like one of those little souvenir globes with the, you know, with the little floaties and the, and the glitter in it. And usually you know, there, there may be a little um, uh, diorama of Malibu or, or somewhere, and you, know, and you shake it up, right? And all the little swirly things are... That's what 
the, the images. That's what it felt like to be on the Sea of Galilee during such a storm, is being shaken up like a child's plaything. Not any, not any place anyone would want to be in their right mind. Luke, in his account, describes the winds as descending down. In my classroom uh, uh, during the week, we, uh, there's a movie that we often watch called Lion King. I'm sure some of you have seen it. You remember that scene where the wildebeests are, are literally running down. They're galloping down the side of the cliff. That's, that's the idea. Is the winds are coming down like, like a terrifying band of marauders. Uh, Matthew uses the word seismos, a violent shaking. It's the word used normally for earthquakes. And the idea then is, is this, this is not a, a quake of the land. This is a quake of the waters. It's a hydroquake. This suddenness of the storm, this, this catastrophic event which develops suddenly leads to the suddenness of peril. In the middle of 37, we're told, the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. The, the, the disciples, these trained, experienced fishermen, they don't even have time to become concerned. The, by the time they even notice what's happening, the boat's already filling up. Such is the fury of the storm. And where is the commander? Where is their leader? Where is the teacher? Where is the master? At the helm taking command, taking charge under his watchful eye. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? He's in the stern with his head on a pillow asleep. Now it says he's on a cushion. The, 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 word, the word here has the word for head in it. So this, was, this would have been a pillow, not, not, a, not a full body cushion. But he's... On this, he's on the stern with his head on a pillow asleep. The king. The son of God. The second person of the Trinity, the creator of the world. The one who, scripture tells us, sustains all things by the power of his word. The one through whom all things were made and without whom nothing was made that was made. The one who speaks and death and demons and disease and disability all obey without hesitation. That one is asleep. And when you consider that he's asleep in the storm, water is smacking him in the face, getting him wet. The wind is howling in his ears and the men are no doubt are screaming. And he's asleep. This shows us that the eternal God really is wrapped up in humanity here. He is human. This is the same humanity. This is the same human flesh garb that Mary and Joseph and the angels and the shepherds saw in the manger. This is his humanity in full effect. Like men, he got tired. Like men, he grew weary. And like men, he needed to sleep. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that he was 
subject to hunger. He was subject to thirst. He is a man. He is fully God, yes. He is fully divine. Everything that God is, Jesus is, which is why he could tell Philip that if you've seen me, you've seen... Finish the... Was it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul tells us in Colossians 2.9 that the fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the exact representation of the Father's nature. He is God, which... It, Reading the Gospels, this has been attested to. This has been proven by his miracles, by his power, by his signs, by the fulfillment of Scripture. He is God. But he grew weary and he needed rest, so he too is a man. He is fully God and fully man, both natures present at the same time, neither lost, neither confused, neither diluted, both distinctly intact alongside each other in a way that I can't even attempt to explain. He is not a fusion of the two. He is not some new uh, uh, man-God hybrid nature. He is fully God. He is fully man. And I can't explain how that happens, which is why it's a miracle. But this is what Scripture reveals, that Jesus Christ is the God-man. And there is the God-man asleep on a pillow in the stern. And note that we are told precisely where he was. We are told precisely how he was sleeping with his head on a cushion. And this suggests that this was given to us by an eyewitness. Likely, I would suggest this is likely Peter. Church tradition tells us that Mark wrote Peter's memoirs, that that's what the Gospel of Mark served as. And in 1 Peter 5.13, we're told that Peter looked at Mark in the same way that Paul looked upon Timothy and Titus. Mark was Peter's son in the faith. And so it makes sense that Mark got this information from one who was there in the boat, from one who saw Jesus asleep with his head on the pillow. And so the, the fishermen, they, they, they instinctively know what to do next. They begin bailing out the water. They, they, some of them are trying to get back to shore and, and, and row. But within moments, text says the boat's already filling up. But before they even start to, to rectify the situation, before they even try to get themselves out of the situation, it's the, the moment they realize they are in trouble, the boat is already filling. Panic sets in. They realize they are going to die. They are not going to survive this. And so they wake Jesus. Now, beloved, it is a bad, bad day when the fishermen consult the carpenter for help on the lake. They wake him and they say, look at, look at verse 38b, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
Now, the critics will say that, that this shows biblical inconsistency. Why? Because Mark here records that they call him teacher. Matthew records that they call him Lord. Luke records that they call him master or, or depending on the translation, captain. Now, I, I, the gospel writers can't seem to get it right. Which one did they call him? But let me, let me ask you, when you're in a panic, when you're in a frenzied pandemonium, and you're going to turn and, and ask and plead with the one person who can possibly help, are you going to say, well, hold on a second. We need to hold a committee here. We need to, we need to be in agreement. What are we going to call him? I mean, we're going to look really unprofessional if we just all come at him from different angles. We, we need to be in unison here. He might be a little unimpressed with us, with our appearance, with our speech, if we don't all say the same. No, this is pandemonium. They're coming at him from every angle. They are frantic. They are in a frenzy. They are desperate. They are going to die. And they are afraid. Absolute chaos. Desperation. Terror. They are going to die. And their fear leads them to doubt Jesus. Their fear leads them prompts them, pushes them to, to doubt his care and concern for them. Now, we, we may try to soften the edges of this a little bit. We may try to rescue them or excuse them. Or they are under extreme duress. They are very stressed. They're under a lot of pressure, yes. But what does the proverb say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Scripture tells us that what we say and what we blurt out when we are under pressure exposes what is really in our hearts. It shows, it brings to light what we really think, which is a good reason why we should be slow to speak and slow to anger. But this, this exposes, this betrays what they were really thinking, what, what is down there deep in their hearts. He says he came to seek and to save the lost. He, he says he came to save people. Well, we are about to perish under his watch. Did he really come to save? He's about to fail the mission. He's about to, fa- to lose us. We are about to die. Jesus, do you not care? Of course Jesus cares. Of course Jesus cares. Never has there been a man so full of compassion and care for others. Never has there been such a man who was so easily moved to mercy and to pity. The Gospels are replete and full of occasions where Jesus, he sees people that are weak. He sees people that are suffering. He sees people that are destitute and that have been taken advantage of. And we are told time and time again that he felt compassion. He is moved to compassion. Those verses, they all use my favorite word in the Greek, splachna. And it's the word used to describe the guts, the innards. It can mean anything from the kidney to the liver to the other things. When it says 
and they said that when he felt compassion, he was moved to compassion. They take this and they turn it into a verb, and it means to to be. Uh, it describes that experience when you are moved, when when your innards are groaning and they're churning, when you see someone suffering and, and pitiful, and you, you you that that moment where you are moved, where you want to do whatever can be done to help, that is. That is being moved to compassion, feeling compassion. And Jesus, never was there such a man who was full of compassion, full of pity. So let no man say, let no critic say that Jesus lacked concern. In fact, I would argue that he was absolutely exhausted and wearied from being so and so concerned, from showing so much compassion towards people. That's why he's fast asleep. He's been compassioned to exhaustion. He's so tired. He's so exhausted. He's so weary. He's so deep in his sleep because of all the concern he's shown that even water sprang into his face and wind howling into his ears and men screaming and the rocking of the boat and the banging of the waves on the side of the boat can't wake him up. That's how tired he was. So where is the calm during the storm? It's not with the disciples. Who has the calm in the storm? Jesus. It is with him asleep in the storm. And in verse 39 and 40 we progress to the calm after the storm. Look at look at verse 39. He got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And notice how Jesus responds to being woken up. He doesn't grumble. He doesn't gripe. He doesn't complain. He doesn't do any of the things that you or I would do if we were woken up and we were so exhausted. But rather, he immediately responds to the cause of their concern. He responds to the peril, to the threat, to the cause of their frantic frenzy. He immediately expresses and demonstrates and proves he does care. He is concerned for them because he immediately rebukes the wind and he commands the sea and he deprives both of their fury. If I was Jesus, I would have, upon being woken up, being being as tired as he was, you know what I would have done? I would have muttered, hush, be still, getting about... I would have gone right, do as little as I need to do, get the job done, go back to sleep. I value my sleep. But Jesus is not like me. That's good. He's not like any of us, which is good. Jesus, rather than demanding he be allowed to sleep, he stands up. Why? Why does Jesus stand up? He does it so that all can see that it was Jesus who was about to save them. He stands up in view of everybody so that what is about to happen 
will be undeniably be because of Jesus. And everybody needs to see that. He stands up in the view of all. He rebukes the winds and he commands the sea, hush, be still, zip it. This comes from the Greek, zip it teomai. No, it doesn't. It, it, it's, the same, it's the same word which, uh, uh, for those of you who have been here for a little bit, it's the same word that Mark used in, uh, to, to uh, very curtly, very abruptly, very uh, authoritatively address the de- demon-possessed man in the synagogue back in chapter 1, verse 25, it, it, uh, where he says to be quiet. And uh, the, 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 the most that our translations do is, is provide an exclamation point. But it, there really should be two or three exclamation points. Uh, the word, uh, it would be appropriate to translate it as shut up. It, it, is, it, is, uh, it, it, it is an exertion of power and authority, and it, it literally means to silence or to muzzle. It is an expression of power and authority such that one is made so that they can't even open their mouth, even if they wanted to. Be quiet. That's precisely what the, what the disciples needed to see. They needed to see Jesus command the elements with this kind of authority. They, now, they had seen Jesus exercise power and authority before, right? They had seen him save others. They had seen his power and his authority at work for the benefit of others. But now they, they see it. They had to see it, in effect, saving them. They needed to be the benefactors of his power and his authority to bring the significance of his power and authority home. The same power that demanded the instantaneous obedience of disease, of disability, of demons, and as we'll see in the next chapter, even of death, now requires the instantaneous obedience of nature, of the elements, of the wind and the sea. And just like the demons, the elements of nature have no choice but to recognize the voice of their creator and respond with immediate obedience. Can you see it? Can, can, can you get this? Do you, do you have this picture in your mind? Jesus is standing before the storm. And he says a very few, short, curt, abrupt words. And the deafening wind that, that has been howling into the ears of the disciples, making their ears ring. The, the water that has been throwing, uh, the wind has been throwing water into their eyes like arrows or javelins. The waves pounding into the sides of the boat again and again and again and again, shaking the ship like a little tambourine. The boat is filling up. No matter how fast these experienced men can bail the water out and get the water out, they, they can't seem to do it fast enough. And there's not enough time to row and get back to shore. Every second, the boat is closer and closer and closer to sinking. Time is running out. 
And then the moment Jesus speaks, the great gale dies. The mega storm is turned into a mega calm. That's the word that, that Mark uses, uh, that the translators translate a fierce gale. That adjective is the same word. It's the same superlative to describe the storm. The translators say it's the perfect, uh, perfectly calm. It, literally, it's a mega calm. There was a mega calm. So the intensity of the storm is paralleled to the intensity of the calmness. Kind of a weird thought, but that's what Mark wants us to see. Just as much as the storm was raging and it was a tumultuous tempest to the same degree that it was bringing terror, to the same degree to which it has now been turned into a placid pond. Calm. Even more calm. Even more sirene. This was clearly miraculous. The boat's not even uh, rocking everything in a moment, instantly, perfectly still. And the calm after the storm then brings about the storm after the calm. Look at verse 41. They became very much afraid. And said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were very much afraid, for good reason. They were surprised by the storm. It it, it had developed, it had struck like a thunderbolt out of a clear sky. It was clearly not like any normal storm. It was not a normal wind. It was a mega hurricane, a mega whirlwind. This was winds of epic proportions. And within minutes or maybe even seconds, we're not told how quickly, but it was suddenly quick enough to surprise and terrorize these trained fishermen. And they were undeniably in peril. They had an understandable fear. But now they have a greater shock. They have a greater fear after the storm has been neutralized. Because greater than the raging sea and the howling wind out that, that were outside the boat is the realization of who it was inside the boat with them. Verse 41 Mark says they were very much afraid. There's a superlative he uses to describe the level of the magnitude of their fear. Anyone want to guess which word that is? Mega. Mega storm, a mega calm, a mega fear. It literally it says that they, they feared a great fear or they feared a mega fear. This mega storm was turned into a mega calm. And because they perceive that none other than God, none other than one who has the power of God, which means they saw him as God, was standing in the boat with them. And that rightly produced a mega, an exceedingly great, a huge, unparalleled 
fear in them. And the light bulb we see is beginning to turn on. They, this is the uh, spiritual splash in the face that is quickening their fear, er, their faith. It is waking them up. And they, they are beginning to realize what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. Beloved, it's not just a title. It's who he is. His powers far surpass the mighty prophets of old, those men who did incredible things at the behest of God. They, everything they did, they did by the instruction, by the explicit instruction at the behest, at the command of God. Uh, we are often given the idea that, that the prophets of old were going around willy-nilly like rogue agents exercising free license and free whim to do whatever they want. But when you, find, when you read the Scripture, when you read the Old Testament, we see that they did and said precisely what God led them to say and instructed them to say. If you read, if you read uh, in Exodus, you, you read Moses. You read about Moses. You see him being instructed and being led around like a, like a, like a guy on the first day of his job in training. So I'm supposed to go to who? To Pharaoh? Yes. I'm supposed to say what? To, I'm supposed to say this to Pharaoh? Yes. That's what you're supposed to say. They, as it pertained to their instructing and their prophesying or their healing or their displays of power, they did precisely what they were empowered and instructed and commanded to do. Nothing more, nothing less. And yet Jesus comes on the scene with, with an authority and a power greater than theirs. He comes speaking on his own authority. He comes healing and exercising power on his own initiative. He, he even forgives sins. That's, hey, that's something that only God can do, said his critics. And, and they were right. You notice Jesus didn't correct them. When Jesus healed, it was instantaneous. It was undeniable. Ears that never heard laughter. Ears that never heard the sweet, soft, tender voice of a mother heard. Eyes that never saw color. Eyes that never saw a rainbow. Eyes that never saw light. See. Limbs that never held weight. Legs that never held weight. Walk. And men who were the playground of demons. They are healed and they are put in their right mind. All by the power, all by the authority of this man. All because this man says so. And every time Jesus spoke and it was, was obeyed, it, it, it's reminiscent. It, it's along the same lines as the one who said, let there be light, and light was. It, he spoke and it happened. He spoke and it was. No assistance, no help from anybody. He does it by himself. No delay. No denial. No, 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 not even a denial by his enemies. His, his enemies could not refute the power that he had. And when Jesus spoke, things happened because he was the one with authority. He is the one with power. He is the one 
to be obeyed. Be it from men, be it from angels, be it from demons or disease or the wind or the water or molecules or atoms. There is no molecule or atom in the universe that is not under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have a title for the one with an authority like that. We have a title for the, for the one who holds the power, and it is Lord. Clearly, Jesus Christ is Lord, and this text makes it clear he's Lord even of nature and the elements. They obey him. They, they recognize he is their Lord and Master. Now, beloved, there's only one being qualified to be Lord in that night or evening. We don't know exactly what time it was. The disciples realized that very being is in the boat with them. And it shakes them, it shakes them to the bone in, the way, in a way that the first storm could not even hope to accomplish. They feared the first storm. They greatly feared God in the boat with them. Why? Well, we see that natural, we, we see that fear is a natural response when men are brought into the presence of God. Abraham in Genesis 18 and Job in chapter, uh, Job chapter 42 both cry, I am dust and ashes. Samson's father said to his wife, we will surely die for we have seen God. Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am, a ru- I'm, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Ezekiel, when he saw God, fell on his face. Daniel, when he saw God, fell on his face. Saul, when he, Paul, when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, fell off his horse, presumably on his face. John, in Revelation, in a, in a vision, fell down to the ground like a dead man. Peter, James, and John on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when they see a, 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 a rehearsal for the glorified Christ, they are exceedingly terrified and they fall to the ground. In Luke 5.8, when he's called, Peter says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When confronted with the realization of God, men became, become painfully aware of their sinfulness. When you see God, you realize that God sees you. When you see his holiness, he sees your sin. And that is a terrifying thought for sinners. And you've probably heard, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, yes, he did, in fact, and that's beside the point. And the gospel narratives record those instances, and they are replete. They are filled with, with uh, 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 attributing deity to him in passages just like this one. Only God can command the elements of nature directly. And, well, I mean, any man can, com- can command nature. Can any man command nature and expect obedience? And this text shows us Jesus is God because he does what only God can do and exercise unmitigated power over things which men can't hope to tame. And, and beloved, this did not escape the disciples. 
people say he Jesus was an, a, a great teacher, that he was a great moral exemplary figure. Notice, he, what, what do they say? What what manner of great teacher is this that the wind and the sea obey him? What what kind of good moral example is is this that the wind and the no who then is this? They recognize he can be none other than God. So this text shows us that Jesus is God. This text also shows us that Jesus is man because he is subject to the weaknesses and the temptations and the limitations, rather, of men. He grows weary. He fell asleep. This text also shows us the compassion of Christ for his own when he needed them, when they needed him, rather. He saved them. And so we could look at this theologically, we could look at this salvifically, and we could argue that the eternal God had to become a man so that he could offer himself as a sin offering, as a substitute for sinners. But I, would, I think it would be more beneficial for us to conclude on a personal note and to see a personal faith-fueled expression of trust in the Lord's care of his servants. Turn to Second Timothy 4.18. Second Timothy 4.18, the Apostle Paul is at the end of his life. He's in prison again, possibly for the third time. And he's writing the letter that many attribute to being his last. And he's saying his last, what's probably his last words to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. And he writes, the Lord are you, there, are you there? Second Timothy 4.18, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. What marvelous words for someone whose death was probably very close. May we have such confidence that no matter the storm we may be in, no matter the evil brought against us, Jesus is the faithful God able to save us to the uttermost and bring us into his kingdom. Amen.